Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm Rios Petra Spitz, and this week we are doing part two of three on Marilyn Manson, one of the most prolific shock rockers in the history of music, blending anarchy, androgyny, and embracing a love for the ugly. He would be a focal point of danger and fears for a generation of parents and become a huge scapegoat through mainstream media for all those that feared his music and visual presentation. After the release of his major label debut record, Portrait of American Family, the band would garner a dangerous reputation, but the spotlight would not be on them as bright as they hoped for. I think it's unfortunate that parents don't know what their kids are doing. That disappoints me. I think parents should know what their kids are doing. I think parents should raise their kids better or someone like Marilyn Manson's going to. Sure. And joining me this week, Brandon Hahn and Sylvia Alvarado. Marilyn Manson's debut record, Portrait of American Family, would finally get released on July 19th, 1994, and the album would not chart on the Billboard Top 200. Critics also found the album to be lukewarm. Lyrically, the songs were full of cult references. Many audio clips used were from films by John Waters like Pink Flamingos and Desperate Living. And then they also had tracks inspired by TV shows like Twin Peaks for the track Wrapped in Plastic. And the prelude to the album was an adaptation of a Willy Wonka poem. Other tracks would feature samples of interviews from serial killers like Richard Ramirez, and the track My Monkey using samples of Charles Manson and using several verses from the Charles Manson track Mechanical Man.
album was criticized for being top heavy and having a strong first half with tracks one through eight, but the second half was all filler. Tracks nine through 13, giving it inconsistencies and receiving mediocre reviews. Other critics and fans at the time saw the record as a poor man's version of the horror movie nods and sample heavy hit record by White Zombie, La Sex Resisto, Devil Music Volume One, and dismissed it as a knockoff in style. It's just, it was, it was quiet. It was like a summer sleeper release. It, um, like in our early, earliest days, uh, rock fans, you know, uh, didn't, it wasn't quite rock enough for rock fans or it was, uh, it was too industrial for rock fans or it wasn't rock enough for industrial fans or, you know, it was, uh, people weren't sure how to take it, but the songs themselves are what pe got people to buy it and listen to it and to tell their friends to buy it. So I think it was, I think it's a, it's a great first record and I think it's a, a great first release because it wasn't over-promoted. It wasn't like uh, the label saying, uh, d driving the product. You know, we, they let people buy it. They didn't tell people to buy it. They let people buy it. And that's really how it's got to be done. At least, at least with a with a rock band like us. The notorious theatrical live show got Marilyn Manson noticed. What did Portrait of American Family fail to do with audiences at the time, and was it in any way ahead of its time? I think it was ahead of its time, mixing that kind of imagery along with that kind of music. Yeah, it may have sounded like a sex or sisto. Yeah, it may have been going in a direction like that. These weren't the they weren't groundbreaking musicians, but again, when it comes you mix that type of music again, even if it's top heavy and you're an opening band, you could still crush it with a top heavy album as long as the imagery adds up to it, as long as the imagery adds that shock appeal. We had a date in Salt Lake City at uh, the American Airlines Arena. And we were told mm, not so early in the day. We, we, by the time we got, we got ready to do sound check, we were told that uh, we wouldn't be allowed to play. And that just didn't make sense. But it was, it was kind of a good sign because we knew that we were generating controversy and, and, and uh, getting the ire of the, the religious public, or the religious right, I should say. And, um, and that was why I guess we were we were not permitted to play. We felt there was nothing to warrant banning us from playing. Uh, so, and we, we had we had gotten attention from parents groups and family groups and Christian groups uh, before this. However, this was a very big venue, and we were we were told we couldn't play. And at some point, uh, before Nine Inch Nails went on, Brian came out and uh, Trent said something, and, and Brian said something defamatory about uh, the church, and he ripped up a, a Bible or a Book of Mormon. And uh, of course, the crowd goes wild. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, I just wanted to play the show. And, uh, but I knew that, you know, the, the religious right that complains about, uh, you know, things that shouldn't be seen or heard, they always forget that, you know, talking about it is only going to promote it. So, so we got a lot of really good uh, free PR out of it. 
and the right kind too, the right kind that would inflame and incense people in other places and, you know, we'd get bigger by being banned and not playing. At the time, they were touring with Nine Inch Nails during 1994 and the opening act was Jim Rose's Circus Sideshow if I'm not mistaken. So you would have virtually like circus guys that would be, if you guys don't know about Jim Rose, like he would have people that would like carry bricks with their nipples. And you know, it's, it's, it's a sideshow type thing. Like a freak show. Like a freak show type thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard to watch because they would torture themselves, these artists. And then Manson would follow that. He would be in line before Nine Inch Nails kind of finished up the show. So that was a lot of people's first impression of the guy. There's an old, there's an old saying that the, the devil has always been the church's best friend because he's kept him in business. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, they've picked me to be that. But I think I don't mind the protesting. I just wish that they would get the facts straight because they think that I do a lot of things, but I'm really about individuality. And on top of that, too, if you have the Jim Rose Circus going out before Marilyn Manson, that guy's taking away the shock appeal of Marilyn Manson. Now you have to top some guy mm-hmm. swinging a cinder block from his nipples. Or his dick. Or his dick. Yeah, he did it on his dick. Oh. His, well, you said nipples first. Yeah, they, they had like a curtain. I saw this along to, when yeah, I saw yeah. it. They had a curtain, and you saw his dick just... Hold up! I want to say it was, it was a cinder block. Yes, it was brutal, man. Was a strong dick. Was a strong dick, well, but I mean, <laughs> how much <laughs> got to be residual effect there, right? Yeah. How much can that dick bench press? <laughs> but I've never been in a place where I stopped being able to define who I was, and it's because I define myself by what I make. You know, it's not work to me, but. I've never been able to go a day without doing something, whether it's writing or painting a picture or making a song or anything. Now, the album in modern times, although remembered fondly by fans, still has a very middle-of-the-road critical view. Here's a quote from Tom Brehan of Stereogum on the album and its 20-year anniversary. Portrait of an American Family has aged badly and was critical of Manson's vocals and the amount of samples used throughout. But he did argue that what still resonates about Manson isn't really his music. Though 1998's Mechanical Animal still stands as a pretty incredible album, Manson was a cultural war agitator for our side. Someone willing to jar and frighten the fuck out of power structures that seemed there to keep teenagers in their place. His whole thing was a violent, overblown rejection of vast forces of oppression and control. And his tactics made him a target both of mass culture disdain and of superior alt culture snark. All that was by design. He put himself out there to take those attacks. And on some level, he's a saint for that. Simply by existing and by moving the baseline, he made lives easier for hundreds of thousands of teenagers. That, rather than cake and sodomy, is his legacy. I'm sure there's a lot of kids whose parents wouldn't let them come see us play. And it's sad, and that's a good reason why we've wanted to put this show together so that people could see exactly what we did because I think if any parents saw exactly what it was that we were doing they wouldn't have a real problem uh, defining it or speaking about it with their children. I think in the end everyone can learn something. Manson, for his part, has always been proud of the album, and despite its lack of critical and commercial success upon release, he stated this when looking back on the record. Well, there was always a real chip on our shoulder that the album never really got the push from the record label that we thought it deserved. It was all about us touring our fucking asses off. We toured for two years solid, opening for Nine Inch Nails for a year, and then doing our own club tours. It was all just about perseverance. Well, one of the things that I've heard is that he throws a, 
when you have the push and co-sign by a leader of the industrial metal revolution like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, but fail to break through to a larger audience, what do you think is the next step to break through? When you got Trent Reznor and he's putting you out there, he's seeing, he understands exactly what he's getting. This is not just a lyrical band. This is also a gimmick, a gimmick that sells. This guy is obviously angry with society, and he's connecting with certain members of the youth. This is a band that's just finding out what they can be. I don't think they knew exactly what they were when they started. And then all of a sudden, Trent Reznor gets behind. He starts putting his little dark spin on things, like we brought up on the previous episode, recording in the sure. Mansom house. And, and it's just adding to this. They slowly kind of found their groove, and they slowly kind of found their, their shtick so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what it was. It was like, again, this band didn't, ha- didn't, they didn't, Marilyn Manson was just pissed off and he was angry and he was just trying to piss everyone else off as well. You know, like he was just railing against the establishment. And when you're using blind rage as your motivating factor, you're going to be going in all different directions. It's kind of hard to focus. So like I said, like in the early days, you know, we would do something crazy or shocking on stage and, um, People would exaggerate they, when they would tell about what they saw, you know, Saturday night. They would they would totally exaggerate it. Like, you know, if we would have a, a girl in a in a cage, it wasn't really a cage. It was a you know it was a <laughs> it was a couple like kids uh, mattress uh, box springs tied together, and you know she had fake blood on her and she was like in a, a bikini or like a, a negligee. And it's like there was nothing. It's a show. But, you know, they would go and tell their friends, oh, you can't believe what happened. So, you know, things get exaggerated and people who have nothing better to do take it all too seriously and inadvertently give us uh, more, <laughs> more PR. I think that, now this is just a take and there's no truth to it, but I think artists are selfish people in general, right? Yes. Trent well, Reznor sure. sees something here that he's like, I can't take it this far, but I can probably push this guy to take it to a certain level. He signed him to his record label. All this stuff is going to go that. So it's like a pet project for him because any way you look at it, if Reznor gets Manson to become the ultimate, what does it do for Nine Inch Nails? It makes Nine Inch Nails look like the Godfathers, right? It's like Dr. Dre and Eminem. It, it, is, it is very similar to that, correct? It's like a cosign. So it's mm-hmm. like a cosign, but it's also someone that is taking it to a level where Reznor doesn't have to take it to that level. I had a picture that my grandmother but she said that uh, she had taken on an airplane flight from West Virginia to uh, Ohio. While doing so, I found a f- coffee can. And when I opened it up, it had the deteriorated remains of an aborted fetus. And in the photograph, there appeared to be an angel in the clouds. And uh, I, took, I took that to Christian school, and uh, I was very excited to share it. And it was almost my most uh, honest attempt to fit in. At the time, my mother tried to brush it off and tell me that it was, it was a joke or a prank, but um, she has since Showed them this picture of the angel, they dismissed it and they said that it was, it was 
a hoax and, and they scolded me and, and sent me home and, and said that, um, that it was blasphemous that I would suggest such a thing. And uh, I've never been able to forget that. And that was one of the very first moments of disillusionment that I had was with this religion. And I guess that could be one of the reasons why I don't drink coffee. Do you think there's some sort of personalized gains that Reznor sees with this kind of project? Trent Reznor was, is an amazing artist. We know this. But again, he was focused and he was classically trained. Like he is a classically trained musician. He has focus. He knows what to do. But the thing is, is he might not be as passionate as of a person as Marilyn Manson is. Or he is. doesn't have the idea. The theatrics. The, the, yes, the yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm getting at. It's like man, Trent Reznor is all about the music. His albums are timeless. They're timeless. Manson was all about the message. And when you get a guy that's all about the message and you just give him a little push, don't worry, don't worry. You know, these these first couple albums, they might not be what you could eventually be, but we're we're getting there. We're getting there. He sees where this is going. The the incident in Jacksonville, which is how we will refer to it, uh, I think I think it was there was a bit of a setup. I mean, uh, I don't think there would have been cops uh, at the show right on time to see uh, you know Marilyn Manson uh, with you know a sexual prosthetic or whatever you want to call it, something that's barely uh, a legal offense, you know, just, just barely. But, I mean, if they, if, you know, if the police saw an opportunity and they were there just at the right time to see it, I, it's kind of a setup. But, uh, but again, you know, anything like that is going gonna, is gonna to help us, you know. Don't, don't arrest the singer, you know, they'll, they'll print his picture and they'll do a story about it. Oh, you know. <laughs> What actually happened was uh, he, Brian just had, um, to the best of my memory, he was just doing his regular act and he had like a dildo or took it out of a lunchbox and he wore it, something very simple. I don't know if it was uh, anything illegal, but like I said, was, you know, the cops were just there awfully conveniently and, uh, and we had a reputation before we got there. And uh, Jacksonville is very, very right wing, very very conservative. I mean, it's the, the buckle on the Bible belt. Now, during the nonstop touring cycle on Portrait of an American Family, the members would be exposed to many abusive habits towards themselves and others. The band would live in excess when it came to drugs and sex, gaining a reputation of a dangerous band to its fans and those who would come to worship their dark alter egos. The Slashers were someone who approached us uh, on our very first tour. At first, initially, kind of had uh, put us off because it seemed so very off their head because they were so involved in what we were doing. Not that it was any more extravagant than things that I do. In early 1995, drummer Sarah Lee Lucas would be replaced by Ginger Fish, and they would get the opening slot for Danzig on his support of his album Danzig 4. The bus driver for Danzig was notorious and his name was Tony F. Wiggins and he would befriend Marilyn Manson 
Madonna, Wayne Gacy, and Twiggy Ramirez. Now, Wiggins was a bus driver for many popular metal acts at the time, like Pantera and Typo Negative. His reputation was notorious for drug binges and makeshift torture devices for a lot of female fans of the bands. He would work for them, and he would set up and engage in perverse acts, criminal sexual adventures, and videotape interviews and confessions administered by Wiggins himself, Manson, Ramirez, Gacy, to disturbed, emotionally unstable, and otherwise strange individuals. They're designed to make people think, but the point with a Bible or a flag is to say it's only as valid as you make it in your heart. A, a it's piece all of about paper, perception, isn't it, Marilyn? A piece of paper or a, a piece of cloth doesn't mean anything. It's what you believe. And I want people to think about what they believe. I want them to consider if everything they've been taught if that's what they want to believe or that's what they've been told that they have to believe. Manson stated the following about his time with Wiggins and his direct influence on the next recording they would do. Wiggins was a vacuum cleaner for sin and claimed that Wiggins was indirectly responsible for his own disappearing innocence and human emotions on the road. When talking about their next record, the EP titled Smells Like Children and the time spent with Wiggins, this is what Manson said. The Danzig tour was a perfect preface to an album about abuse, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, drug abuse, psychological abuse. Midway through the record, we initially included one of the taped confessions we had gathered from a girl who molested her seven-year-old male cousin. It underscored the subplot of the album about the most common target of abuse, innocence. I've always liked the Peter Pan idea of being a kid in mind, if not in body. And Smells Like Children was supposed to be a record for someone who's no longer a child. Someone who, like myself, wants their innocence back now that they've corrupted enough to appreciate it. What began as a very disturbing record had become a record that disturbed only me. Well, we weren't quite ready to uh, put together a second record. And uh, everyone felt like, everyone, like as, as far as the label and management and all, felt that we should uh, do more live dates. But we needed a break, so we took a break and we went down to to New Orleans to record with Trent Reznor again. And that's when we put together the EP. Uh, since we weren't ready for a full second record, we put together the EP um, Smells Like Children, which featured uh, Sweet Dreams. When the right band picks the right cover, it can be real magic. Does the goals of Marilyn Manson at this stage seem more about the lifestyle and adventures of being a rock star or the music? I think it'd be being a rock star. I think he's trying to like explore that that side of of music and rock. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'd be it more so. Let's see how how much I can push the limits. I don't even think it's about him being a rock star. He wants to be a god. He wants people to worship him. Mm -hmm. And the women that were allowing themselves to be videotaped, you know, confessing these awful, awful things, the women that were allowing themselves to be putting these torture devices, he got off on that because they were doing it to please him. So it was at, their, them sacrificing themselves was them sacrificing themselves to him. So at that point, the music is kind of, not gone, but it's... It's not as important as what's going on right now. To learn how to manipulate masses or the weak, like you said, that's a God complex. Rock stars have that. They do. They want to learn to manipulate people they don't even like 
just to get a result that makes them not bored. Because they have power. Because they have power, exactly. A power that's given to them by the, the, the masses. So he seemed to have that prior than he, than he had any musical success. I don't understand why you pick Catholicism, why you go with the, the cross, with God, with the Pope. To me, she has lost her religion because of watching, listening to him as well as other musicians. She's not a Catholic anymore. She has no religion anymore, and that's what's bothering me. Well, you know, it could be because it was your religion and maybe it wasn't supposed to be hers. I tried to look at the things that I was taught growing up about Christianity in a different way. You know, I looked at the image of Christ on the cross and the story of him as someone who was a revolutionary with dangerous ideas. And I started saying to myself, oh, I can relate to this story now. I'm not going to dismiss it, but I'm going to I'm going to interpret it in a different way. So everybody should you know, you have to be open minded. You, I'm sure when you were young, you didn't want to listen to what your parents were trying to tell you to believe in. Did he learn it from Trent Reznor or did he learn it from the bus driver? I mean, it's like the bus driver was the one that's going, hey, look, you really want to think you're evil? I got some evil mm -hmm. for you. And it's hard to say, but like in the in the mid to early 90s, accountability wasn't a thing. It was more about how much can you get away with? That was really kind of the mentality of the dangers of rock music. Guys like Danzig, guys like Reznor, guys like Manson, you know, Rob Zombie, uh, this, this whole thing, the aura behind them or Pantera even was how much can they drink? How much fun can they have? How much partying? It was... In the, in the 80s, there was hair metal, which was drugs and girls and excess. And, mm -hmm. and excess, right, to see how far you can take the party. But in the 90s, it's like there was a darkness to all that. For yeah. sure. Yeah, it wasn't about partying. It was about I have emotions in me that need to get out. Yeah. And again, Marilyn Manson fed into that, uh, that godlike complex. And if you really look at it, that was the peak of rock and roll because that was the ultimate fear because think about it, like in the 70s, you had Black Sabbath and they were talking about the devil. Oh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's all it was. It was like they would bring up songs about the devil or just, you know, barbarian type shit, you know. But and that then, was it. That was it, you know. And then in the and then in the, the, the 80s, you know, you had punk your, rock. Yeah, you had punk rock, you know, that was just all about rebellion. Yeah, like we don't care about what you have to say. Yeah. And then but then it got extended with the hair metal. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Soundgarden start coming out and they're talking, you know, real things are getting brought up now. Things that people, things that weren't really getting brought up in songs were getting brought up to the masses. And then Marilyn Manson comes along and, and he's said, like, fuck your sadness, I'm angry. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And people resonated with that. They, there wasn't anybody that said, give in to the hate. And Marilyn Manson was like, go ahead. It's fun. Embrace the hate. Yeah. What I wanted to talk to everyone today about, uh, I don't really want to preach, I just want to more bring up some questions. And uh, since I always tend to be a scapegoat, I thought we'd talk about blame. Right now everybody wants to blame music, they want to blame movies. Look at Woodstock, but, uh, for example. Well, it was supposed to be hippies and love and PC and United Colors of Benetton and bottled water. But instead they got uh, riots, fire and rape. You know, and uh, part of it, I think, is is this phenomenon that, to me, is related to sports. And it's when rap and rock began to mix, and we created this oxymoron called jock rock. And uh, to me, it's kind of like uh, people come to a party that they don't understand, but they're just smart enough to know that they're the stupidest people there. So that makes them mad. I think that's what uh, Woodstock was. You had these white kids in football jerseys 
trying to make rock and roll a sport by raping girls and beating each other up, and everybody's surprised, you know, well, why, why, you know, it's the music, it's the music, you know. I think, it, you know, uh, part of man's evolution is always to compete. I think parents, you know, they're deriving their kids, uh, particularly through sports, you know. The rumor mill behind Manson was circulating at this time, and the game of telephone would make him more and more appealing as the stories went on. A lot of the stories are now just kind of mythological. The truth you can't even find anymore because they've been told so many times, and there's additions to them. Hi, my name's uh, Jordy White, and uh, I've uh, been in a few bands, one of them a perfect circle, the other uh, my first band playing with Marilyn Manson for about 10 years. In the, in the first few years of it, I witnessed this situation that uh, I didn't really take too much part in, but, well, maybe I did, but I'm not going to say this on camera. We were in a studio similar to this in, uh, in South Beach, and um, we were recording a Gary Newman cover of Down in the Park for, it was a B-side on for some single we put out, I'm not sure which one. A guy from a band called Nine Inch Nails was, was uh, producing the track, I don't want to name any names. And then um, <clears throat> there was some girls in the lobby of the hotel, because the South Beach Studios, it's in, uh, it's in, I think, the Marlin Hotel in South Beach. Just a small little mixing studio. And there's, some, there's uh, a couple girls came up, and one of them happened to uh, be a fan of music, but she was also deaf. Too. An early story that was circulated a lot was at the time when they were recording a record in 1983, a deaf girl that was a groupie, Marilyn Manson went down, he, he saw her at the hotel in Florida, he brought her up to the room and keyboardist Madonna Wayne Gacy stated he had a fetish to sleep with a deaf girl because he can say anything he wants. So I don't know how she was a fan of music. music she said something about she uh, felt the, you know, I guess she felt the beat kind of more than actually hearing the music, but you know, she followed a lot of bands, and I guess she was one of the bands she followed, us. And then some people, in the, as the night grew on, under certain substances, and started to get a little crazy, and she proceeded to take her clothes off. And um, no one would have sex with, you know, the deaf girl, especially in front of everybody. Not that, I mean, deaf girls need love too, just like anybody else, but no one, <laughs> it's so bad at going to hell for that. The girl got naked in the hotel room. Manson placed lunch meat all over her body, including making a helmet for her to wear. Then bassist Twiggy Ramirez and Gacy, they scotch taped their penises together and put them in this girl's mouth while she had the lunch meat helmet on. Manson then had sex with her, and then they all urinated on her face and her body. Then guitarist Daisy Berkowitz entered the room and underwear the guys peed on her face made out with her prior to going in the shower. The story has been told by every band member and also the girl she told it on Howard Stern. But every single person has a different version throughout the years, including some that have no sex happening, some that have no pee happening, and the timelines don't add up in certain versions. Manson even wrote a version of it in his book, The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. A few people in the room proceeded to make a meat helmet out of uh, ham and pepperoni hot dogs made like a crown of meat that she wore as she was naked. And um, again, she proceeded to put lunch meat all over, well, not, someone proceeded to put lunch meat all over her naked body. So she's like sort of a, a meat queen for, uh, 
for death. And then everything was fine until somebody in the room crossed the line and started to uh, urinate in the room. I think some peepee got on this girl, who we will call her by her first name, who just happened to not be able to hear her. She wasn't totally naked, she had a pair of new boots on. And she said, she could speak pretty clearly for nothing to do. She said, not in my eyes, it burns. And please watch out for my boots because they're brand new. Then she proceeded to take a bath. And that's, that's pretty much it. But you can probably hear more about, read more about that story in uh, Manson's book, A Long Hard Road Out of Hell. True story. There you go. What do these rumors, truths, and half-truths do for the mystique and appeal of the band in this mid-taboo-breaking 1990s? It heightens the mystique. And it, um, I remember Manson being like super scary, I mean, when I was a kid. So um, having all these rumors, it, it just adds more to the scariness and like, just fear me, you know? I think that's what it does to, to the mystique and to Manson's kind of urban legends or whatever. And w- whatever you fear the most becomes a god because it has power on you. Fear is like the ultimate power that people will have over people, right? So that, that all lands into this rock god mentality. Of course, I don't mean that I'm insensitive to it. I just mean I don't know them. So I can't personally, you know, if it was someone that I knew that got hurt. Of course, yeah, every, there's so many bad things that happen in the world. If you felt bad about all of them, it's just like love. If you love everyone, if, you know, it's kind of dilutes it. But you can't, I just learned a long time ago, you can't change the world. You can just try to make it something in it. And I think that that's my spirituality, that if, you, you know, believing in, uh, putting something into the world. If you take all the basic principles of any religion, it's usually about creation. You know, there's also destruction, but creation, uh, essentially, you know. At the same time, too, you know, you look at uh, how people in the olden days, like I'm talking like 16, 1700s, mm-hmm. they would be talking about like, uh, okay, you've seen the movie Braveheart. Remember how they were talking about William Wallace and they're like, I heard he was seven feet tall and he could shoot lightning bolts out of his ass and yeah. all these all these insane lures that, get, that people really do buy into. That's what Marilyn Manson's doing. The fact that everybody's got a different side of the story just makes it that much more titillating. It makes it that much more... It attracts people yes. because you want to know more and you want to know the truth. Right, right. And the thing is, is like the more... the and it's, and it's a game of telephone. I mean, it's like you tell somebody, you tell somebody, this is what happened. Now, all of a sudden, years later, mm-hmm. their version changes and it keeps evolving. It keeps evolving. It keeps getting crazier. When really, if there was a camera in there, that would be the only way that we would find out the truth. Well, these people represent uh, total rebellion against authority, rebellion against parents, now corrupted and garnering a reputation among his peers as a no holds barred partier and worshipped by fans before breaking through the mainstream trent reznor would put the band in the studio to try and capitalize on the new darker and more evil image that the band was representing so a lot of people would buy smells like children and there's a lot of there's a couple you know, there's a couple forgettable cuts on it, but the um, that's really what propelled us uh, for uh, propelled us to the level where people would ex- were 
anticipating Antichrist Superstar. The next release was originally intended to be a remix type record, and they wrote and recorded entirely on tour with Nine Inch Nails in 1994. And the rest were strange outtake type recordings. For example, Tony F. Wiggins, the debaucherous bus driver we were just talking about, would do it an acoustic redneck version of Cake and Sodomy. A song called Fuck Frankie just had someone crying and screaming the words Fuck Frankie over and over again for a minute. Frankie was a tour manager that stole $20,000 from them. Let's take a moment to see what it has to say right here. Says right here, you gotta be saved in order to go to heaven. The way I see it, you only gotta be yourself to go to hell. We will no longer be oppressed by the fascism of Christianity. will no longer be oppressed by the police state mentality. None of those people outside realize how much power is in this one room. Also, the album would have cover songs in between the remixes and sketches, and the three cover songs would all be seen as smartly crafted revisions, and this would be seen as the focal point of selling the album. One would be Screaming Jay Hawkins' I Put a Spell on You. The second, Patti Smith's punk rock classic, Rock and Roll Nigger. A funny thing happened today. There was a song written about 20 years ago by Patti Smith. It's called Rock and Roll Nigger. cover that would become a big hit and break them into the mainstream the eurythmics sweet dreams are made of these and everybody most most everybody that heard it liked it even if um and and but most importantly people that like younger listeners that weren't familiar with the eurythmics version when it originally came out they liked it you know and that's important because the people who heard it when it first came out by the eurythmics they were like, wow, that's a neat take on it. That's really cool. So when you have both sides doing that and buying the record, uh, Smells Like Children, which also included remixes from Portrait and um, a couple other covers, like I Put a Spell on You. Why do you think the decision to release an album without any good original content or direction was made by this band? I think, I mean, when you hear 
Sweet Dreams. It's still kind of Marilyn Manson's song. He totally made those songs his own. So it's kind of like you're hearing new songs in a way. That's what it is. It's basically taking a song that people are familiar with. Yeah. And it's a song that you already know the words to, but I'm going to put my little Marilyn Manson spin on it. And now I'm introducing myself to you mm-hmm. through their music. Especially the Eurythmics song. Again, that had a pop beat to it. It had that thumping bass. And then all of a sudden, here comes Marilyn Manson with the xylophone and the way he, like the weird voices sure. that he does. It's like, dude, it, 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 was a com- it was the same song, but it was a completely different song. But is it fair to think that when you when you hear the word or the, the song title, um, Sweet Dreams Are Made of These, you automatically think of Marilyn Manson? That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean, he took it over. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. I mean, you it's know? just like when Jimi Hendrix did All Along the Watchtower. That was a Bob Dylan song. But when I think about that song, that was oh. Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. I'm not sure Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is still in the United States of America. So we're going to have to make up our own national anthem. We Now, reviews for the 55-minute EP, Smells Like Children, was all primarily negative. Here's a couple reviews at the time. The Village Voice music cricket Robert Christigau defines Smells Like Children as an unmitigated consumer fraud, a mess of instrumentals, covers, and remixes designed to exploit its well-publicized tour, gender fuck cover art, titillating titles, and parental warning label. The lyrics to Shitty Chicken Gang Bang are non-existent. Those to everlasting cocksucker, incomprehensible. Only fuck Frankie, a spoken word number in which a female feigning sexual ecstasy reveals that it isn't full Frankie or fire Frankie or fast Frankie or for that matter fist Frankie delivers what it promises. It's easily the best thing on this record. Initially, we we didn't we didn't wouldn't consider Lollapalooza because we didn't want to like what it was about. But we figured if anybody were to change what it would be about, we should do it. If we do do Lollapalooza, we'll make sure that we piss everyone off, burn the stage down, kill a lot of chickens, and offend uh, women and, and uh, minorities and, and ourselves along the way. 
Entertainment Weekly also gave it a negative review, calling it an artlessly assembled excuse for an album. These minor league white zombie wannabes throw together pointless remixes, irritating skits, and lame cover songs by Eurythmics, Screaming Jay Hawkins, and Patti Smith. Co-producer Trent Reznor should hang his head in shame. And we know that you also uh, produced by Trent Reznor, who kind of, I guess, I guess you could say discovered you guys, right? Yeah, he's been uh, taking care of us from the beginning. I met him about around the same time the band was starting, about five years ago. And uh, he's always been a fan of our music. And when he started his own label, he asked us to be. Were you the first band that was ever on his label? Yeah, and. Uh, he provided us with an atmosphere where we could do what we wanted and we didn't have to worry about censoring ourselves and we like that so because he i mean as far as helping a band out he really helped you out he not only produced you and put you on his first label um as the first band ever to be on his label but has also taken you out on the road and this is getting you like a whole lot of exposure right great exposure this tour opening up for nine inch nails yeah and how much longer does this tour go for uh, it finishes uh, tonight in Philadelphia, and uh, we start a club tour uh, headlining smaller clubs January 13th in uh, Dallas. Now, what kind of fans do you think of the people that are showing up at Marilyn Manson shows? It's kind of diverse. First, you guys smile. What's on your teeth? If the eyes aren't freaking out enough, he's got the teeth right now. So no, I see the teeth. It's a pretty diverse crowd. He's the guy that's going to smile, show his no, teeth. And this guy over here is a whole other story. Go ahead. Young okay? boys that, 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 uh, that Maybe like I shouldn't ask. So <laughs> uh, now I know when to cut these guys off. We're going to go play some videos. We'll be back with more Marilyn Manson. Retrospectively, it has been seen with less vitriol. Here is a modern review from allmusic.com about the album. Where the full-length debut showed sparks of character and invention beneath industrial metal sludges, Smells Like Children is smartly crafted horror show filled with vulgarities ugliness, goth freaks, and sideshow scares. Manson wisely chose to heighten his cartoonish personality with the EP. Most of the record is devoted to spoken word and samples, all designed to push the outrage button of middle America. I'm not sure if my parents ever really understood what I do, but uh, it seems that when other people started to accept it as valid, is when they started to accept it as well. Regardless of the act's music getting positive attention, the video for the Rhythmics cover of Sweet Dreams was a smash hit on MTV. And the theatrical appeal of Marilyn Manson created fear, anxiety, controversy, and desire to many. The embrace of the ugly and careless acceptance of making it seen as something beautiful was embraced by the mainstream. Deformities and disgust was now a marketable commodity to many teenagers, and Marilyn Manson was the corner of their brains in full display. Okay, you need to ask some questions. But one thing, let me tell you about this group that here tonight. See, they don't realize that they're going to die, and there is a hell. But they and Manson won't be their leader in hell. They will burn and burn and burn till they can't. I mean, they will burn for eternity. And there is a heaven, and God is over heaven. And the just will be fit for their righteousness. And when they see Manson again, they will wish they would never even heard his name, lest on saw him. Because hell bound, they will be going. And hell bound, it tells me, you will be there eternally. And you will be burning, and there will be gashing of the teeth. Now, who wants to go to hell? Ask me, sir, would you want to go to hell?
The image of Marilyn Manson was transformed and easily sold to the youth in the mid-90s, and the danger behind his words and actions were embraced. Why did the teenagers and youth of that time need Marilyn Manson? Every boundary in rock and roll was pushed at that point. Uh, You see Marilyn Manson, and I always kind of look at him as the evolution of Alice Cooper. And I really do think that's the evolution of shock rock in general, because there's no going back. There's no going back with this, especially with the society that we live in now. Marilyn Manson would have been arrested for all these alleged stories with, you know, meat helmets and pissing on a deaf girl. There would have been an investigation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And but the thing is, is we had Marilyn Manson showed the line. He showed how far you could push the line. And then nowadays, it's like if you cross that line, you're just like, you're just doing it for shock. Mm-hmm. No one no one buys into it. The fear isn't there anymore because kids nowadays, they grew up with Marilyn Manson. They knew what it was. Mm-hmm. They were introduced to that at six years old because their parents were listening to it. But he was genuine. That's what like, I'm getting He at. walked the walk. I, I, and I think he talked the talk, but I think everything that they put on him, like he really put himself through that excess. I heard that you guys were doing a show in Florida, or many times, I'm not sure, that you had your girlfriend at the time wrapped in cellophane up on a truth on a cross, and you'd like go up and like munch on it while on stage and everything. Is this true or not true, or am I getting part of the story wrong? Well, I'm pretty sure that that happened. Um, that many other things have happened. It's just really a matter of, I like to do whatever I feel like going on any given day. Um, I'm willing to accept the responsibility of, you know, going to jail or whatever, if that's what, you know, I have to do with pay the price for my actions. So I'll do whatever I feel like. Uh, today's artists, there's no real, there's no urban legend. There's no mystique. Yeah, there's no mystique. There's no mystique. Social media killed mystique. Yes, exactly. Oh, for sure. And there's no going back. I don't think we'll ever see another Marilyn Manson to where these stories get put out. Because in these in this day and age, if you put out a story, you can immediately immediately smash it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not the guy from Wonder Years because they could get somebody on. They can get the guy from Wonder Years on the phone, and you'll see it on Twitter or Facebook that this is not yeah. the case. Or you do your research, just Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly. All the lies, <laughs> all the lies that you put out there are immediately smashed, and it just kills that that image. It kills. It kills. It kills that that special thing that we all gravitated to rock stars for everybody's human now yeah and and when we say Marilyn Manson was a rock god that was a term that was legit there is no rock gods anymore there's DJs that have threesomes that's it that's it (laughs) I tried to uh I submitted a photo shoot that I did um evolved around that revolved around uh erotic asphyxiation uh with me strangling uh a girl with a telephone cord, and I submitted that to Hustler, but they, they said it was too vulgar and they were printing it. You know, that, uh, I was surprised that a magazine like Hustler, you know, who uh, always had cartoons like Chester the Molester and uh, things like that, could be offended by something that I had done. 
which I thought was kind of tasteful. I thought maybe someone like uh, Sprint or MCI might be interested in using it for one of their long-distance ads. Smells Like Children would be released on October 24, 1995 and would debut number 31 on the Billboard charts and sell in excess of 1 million copies in the United States. The commercial success of Smells Like Children catapulted the band into the spotlight and Trent Reznor and the band immediately went into the studio with the knowledge that they had to release something as dangerous and evil as the transformed image of Marilyn Manson. But the chaos and insanity that followed the band would enter the recording process again. When we, when we start, initially started recording Antichrist, it was, what was it, I think February, February or March of 96, and there wasn't a real clear-cut plan for the production of the album as far as uh, the art of it, as far as the, the music. It was just like we had a bunch of ideas up in the air, and... Um, Different people would make decisions at different times for different reasons. And uh, it was just, it was kind of, kind of messy. And it was socially messy, too. Um, so, uh, and, and also, uh, when, we, when we started, it was decided that uh, we weren't going to record some, some older songs that we had that we hadn't released yet, that we had only... Uh, put out on four track, um, like a fan favorite and one of my favorites, Suicide Snowman was was rejected, and it sounds small, but I mean that was a big deal because that was a song that people loved and that that was it was just really good and I couldn't believe it was it was it, it was it was it was said by by Reznor that you know we're not going to do this one. Well, there's 16 tracks on the record, and there's about 10 more that went unfinished or undeveloped. So if at the beginning of the recording phase you're shutting out this tune, that tune, and the other tune, well, what about all the crap you, you, know, you just slogged through? So, you know, tensions rose and people alienated each other and it, it, got, it got pretty bad. Unbeknownst to the public, the band would enter Nothing Studios in New Orleans on February 1996, and a collective of musicians would be involved in the project, including the entire Marilyn Manson band members, Trent Reznor, and Nine Inch Nails guitarist Robin Fink, and Danny Lohner, and drummer Chris Renna. And the production would be helmed by Trent Reznor and Marilyn Manson, but because in the recording process, all members would be involved constantly using heavy drugs and testing the limits of sleep deprivation, Nothing would get accomplished, and constant fights would occur. Early on in the process, sessions would amount to nothing getting recorded and the studio getting trashed by the musicians involved. Antichrist Superstar was uh, a much darker, uh, serious, th even threatening record. Um, a lot of the f uh, fun and mayhem and, and uh, surreal silliness that was with Marilyn Manson, even up to the point of uh, Sweet Dreams coming out or Smells Like Children coming out, was uh, was was pretty much gone. Was pretty much swallowed up by the uh, the more threatening, darker thing that came from uh, Antichrist Superstar, and that was that, that was like the biggest, most significant change in in the band and the band's appeal, because it was you know once you once you get darker and louder and scarier, 
you can't say, oh, I was just kidding. You've kind of got to stay there. I mean, ministry went the other way around. Well, they, they didn't really go the other way around. They kind of went the same way, but they used to, have, they used to be very dancey, very much more towards the dance floor and, uh, and more melodic. But then, you know, like around 1990, they were the masters of an industrial sound with like incredibly heavy, tough drum machine and guitar sounds that were just like ridiculous. But once you do that, once you sound, once you change your sound that way, you can't go back. Or if you do, you better make it interesting because you know new fans, like anybody that that didn't own Portrait or or uh, Smells Like Children, that was into metal and then heard you know, beautiful people, and went out and bought uh, Anacar Superstar, that's all they know. So if they were to hear something earlier, they might not like it as much, or, or, or maybe they would, but I mean, if you come in at a certain point in a band's career, um, you judge them by, by that time, you know. The majority of the animosity seemed to be towards the guitarist Daisy Berkowitz. The major rift would be between him and Trent Reznor. Reznor was the only critical acclaimed musician and seen as the most talented musician in the room. However, Marilyn Manson was not his band, and this record having to be leagues better than the previous work, Reznor would continually take over full creative control. Prick your finger, it is done. Now we, the moon has now eclipsed us sun. the angel has spread his wings. Seven years old, I want to I I be a rock and roll star. The conflict between the musical genius behind Nine Inch Nails and the rest of Marilyn Manson trying to create music and meeting his expectations can cause what kind of problems? Okay, once again, Marilyn Manson is constantly trying to push the boundaries, but you still have to make it commercial. That's what Trent Reznor brought to the table. Because if you just went the Marilyn Manson route, you would get the trashy reviews and the, the songs wouldn't matter. They wouldn't click. You would just be going there to watch him, you know, cut himself and try and blow himself. Do something or, theatrical. Yeah, exactly. Pull Twiggy's dick out or whatever. I oh mean, my. it's like, yeah, there was... <laughs> oh my. <laughs> there, was, there was like all these... You would do insane things on stage, but you also have to have the music to back it up. And yeah. this is their one chance to have the music to back it up. And when you're trying to take this insane folklore godlike person and try to get him to follow the rules and the band to follow the rules, you're going to have problems. Mm -hmm. I felt at the time was I was unhappy. So it wasn't so much about things were going out of control. I didn't know how to control things. So I felt, I mean, if you think about in life, anyone's greatest fear is not having control over your life and everyone can relate to that. that that chaos is i think what they want but it's also kind of a defense mechanism to be like okay i don't want to get to real time i just want to create something right yeah that's that's the thing about bands that are like let's take a bunch of drugs and write a song they do that because they feel that there's going to be something beyond themselves that will come out
everybody's afraid to put something out there that they put all this focus, all this work into. Their vulnerability. They're, exactly. There's a vulnerability involved into it. When you are doing drugs... You're like, well, that was the drugs talking. Yeah. Now you have an excuse to not be professional. Now you have an excuse to not give your whole heart and soul yeah, to this. It wasn't me. It was a drugs. And right. like, I'm not performing as I should because it's that's not me. That's not sober me. For as long as he's been famous, he's been associated with high decadence, sex, Satanism and hard drugs. He is best known in Britain as the androgynous performer who is single-handedly keeping goth culture alive. In America, he's feared and vilified. They would bring in another producer, Skinny Puppy producer Dave Ogilvie, and that would also cause more tensions. Now, Reznor would be the focus, though, of a lot of the tensions with Daisy Berkowitz. Reznor would bully Daisy Berkowitz during the recording session, even belittling him. Pretty much the, the reason or reasons I left the band is because uh, there was a lot of favoritism going on and uh, a lot of my ideas were being neglected and I just got I just got really frustrated and Brian definitely seemed to have forgotten about my uh, my value you know the, the importance of, of me being uh, not only uh, the main music writer but like his co-founder his original partner uh, you just totally forgot about it and uh, I knew it couldn't get better if, if it had reached that point in his mind. I knew that things couldn't be better for me. He saw me as uh, maybe not even as expendable, but less important than other people. And uh, I wasn't, I wasn't going to stick around for that because I had a lot of great ideas. And, you know, if, I, if he wasn't going to help me develop them, I was going to do them on my own. So that's what I did. I came back to Florida and I formed... Uh, my band Three Ton Gate, and, uh, and that's that. Berkowitz recalls the moment in the studio with Reznor, whom he said purposely destroyed a Fender Jaguar given as a gift to Berkowitz from his father, who passed away less than a year ago. Berkowitz stated, I was in the studio, and they were all in the controlled room, and I'm playing guitar. At the end, Trent says, do it again, but do it more like this. We went through this three times, and, and he says, hold on. I'll come in there. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So I take my guitar off. I hand it to him. He smashes it just to fuck with me. Then he laughed and left the room. The entire group of musicians had animosity towards Berkowitz and would side with Reznor throughout his disdain for the guitar player. But this incident with Reznor specifically would be the breaking point for Berkowitz and he would leave the band mid-recording. Uh, I left the band in May of 96 and... Uh, Antichrist came out in October of 96, but when it came out, it debuted at number three on the Billboard chart and eventually went double platinum. And that achieved everything Brian and I set out to do <laughs> in 1990. You know, we jokingly said, let's put a rock band together and make a million dollars. And that's kind of what happened. And, and the, the subtext was, of course, and let's piss a lot of people off, you know, especially the religious people. And that's what happened. I mean, here's this record that... that did very very well and uh it's called antichrist superstar i mean what could be more yeah a few few titles that have debuted at number three could be more were more offensive you know if if none if any 
Reznor was documenting stating that Berkowitz's guitar sound and style was important to the band in later interviews, and that him leaving the fold would be bad for the future of the group. But like many accounts on the recording for Antichrist Superstar, there is two sides to every story, and the only facts that seem to be keep coming up is there was conflict. The devil is the church's best friend. It's kept him in business. You know, these are all roles, Christ and the devil. It's, it's all a big play. You know, I'm playing the role of the devil. After Daisy Berkowitz's exit from the group during the recording of the album, Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor would now be in direct conflict. But it would be deflected and placed directly on the other outside producer involved, Dave Oglev. And he would be fired from the project and get replaced by Nine Inch Nails mixer, Sean Bavane. You work with Trent and uh, Dave Ogilvy from Skinny Puppy on this record. Tell me about it. When, when you were going in to record the record, you originally told me that it was you were going to set up a situation of in complete chaos, just real tension in the studio to, to push it to the limits. Did you Were you able to achieve that? We used a lot of different elements. Um, uh, Hebrew, Kabbalism, sleep deprivation, pain, threshold rituals, uh, narcotics, um, everything. We built this uh, contraption. It was like an isolation chamber, and I used to spend a lot of time in there. But we were just trying to bring out different parts of the subconscious that you wouldn't get normally. So it was like a real uh, uh, race with death, the whole recording of the album. And the album is about that whole transformation. So. It was like a work in progress, and it's still, it's, it's like a living piece of uh, art because people's reaction to it will continue to feed the outcome of the, the album. The recording was designed by its creators to be fueled by drugs, sleep deprivation, and insanity. This ideology was costing money, founding members to exit the band, and producers to get fired. What, if any, are the positives of creating in this fashion? The One of the positives that I see is it's so organic. And if you can capture an organic moment on film, on tape, then it's just going to seem a lot more real. It's going to seem like it's a lot more from the heart because you're not thinking about it. You're not you're not putting you're not making a conscious effort to make something amazing. You just make it. And when you can capture those moments, it's special. With all the exposure you get, there's the good, which I'm sure is really good. But I'm sure the negative part of it is going to be really hard. I mean, I don't see, I've never seen any musician who just gets the firewall like you do. Yeah. So what's, what's that like? Um, I've learned to kind of ignore it. But you still have to piece a puzzle together. It's still songwriting. It's but, still music. But my so. thing is, though, is when you are constantly overthinking it and you're constantly overanalyzing it. It ruins it. It, it ruins, ruins the magic. It. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens in, in a lot of situations. But to me, this is overanalyzing and overthinking. You think this is kind of subconsciously thinking? To me, it's like we have to be fucked up to even write is overanalyzing. It's putting limitations on what you're trying to say. Not exactly. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's bringing out a different side of you that normally wouldn't especially the Marilyn Manson persona, it is all about drugs. It is all about being fucked up. It is all about sleep deprivation. So this is just adding to the mystique. This is just adding to who that character really is. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, like when you're sober, you put a lot of um, a lot of walls blocking your creativity. And when you are, you know, fucked up or you're drunk or whatever, all of that goes away. Looking like I do on stage or like I do in the past in photographs, to me doesn't really translate into a film that is supposed to be very much realistic. Mm -hmm. 
Or as the French say, cinema verite. Whatever. Do the French actually say that? I don't I know. So. Whatever. Cinema very gay. But, um, so, I just want to look like I do, for the most part, when I'm at home. And um, I just liked it because I, I feel like I finally feel comfortable and realized that I forgot that I'm supposed to be insane and ridiculous and living in a fantasy world and that shouldn't be a criticism that affects me in a negative way. That's who I am. So I light my life like movie and uh, I mic my bed and, uh, you know, that's the way I live. It's like when you're getting high or something like that and and you're laughing and you're so hard and then the next day you're like, what were we laughing about? I don't know. But in that one moment, it was amazing. Well, that's kind of how it is with music. That one moment, if you capture the right moment and then you go back and listen to it while you're sober, you're like, whoa, we just made something amazing. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, if you get you could fall into that pit and never come out. Um, this record will probably do uh, to music what the Manson murders did to America in 69. It's, uh, it's something that will shake things up socially and politically, and uh, it's, it's an important album for us. And uh, like you said, I, I see things as being very similar. I see the, the axis between those two times, you know, being interchangeable. With original and founding guitarist Daisy Berkowitz exiting the band, bassist Twiggy Ramirez would step in to play and record the majority of the guitar work going forward. Trent Reznor would start to also add and shape the record, which would cause huge conflict with Manson. The two would argue and fight about these creative differences throughout the recording, with Reznor taking advantage of his knowledge of creating and composing music over Manson. By the end of the recording of Antichrist Superstar, the two would not be friendly and the partnership would fully deteriorate so uh so tell me about the uh the new guitar player and where you found him uh, since uh, daisy is gone his name's zim zim and he's from chicago well, did, did he did you audition him did, was, he, was he someone you guys knew before yeah we auditioned him yeah, yeah. was he, our old guitar player um he didn't he couldn't really grasp the, the concept of antichrist superstar and uh, we just had a lot of creative differences and he didn't really I don't think he liked our fans, really. He didn't really understand what we were about, you know, so we just wanted to, you know, represent us as honestly as possible, so we felt we'd be a lot stronger if we were to get somebody else on the team. The media would take notice, and although they would release songs on the Trent Reznor-produced soundtrack to the David Lynch film Lost Highway, those tracks were recorded during these sessions, and the two would never record together again. He, through management, through his management, we were friends, blah, 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 blah. Kind of said, you know, I think stuff had a lot to do with me, some subject matter, which it did. And I've got a pretty cool idea for a video. I want to find me in the video. And that opened the door to us talking. And then after five minutes of talking, it was, you know, hugging each other, kind of friends situation. And then we just decided to kind of raise hell with this video and um, and agitate and point the fingers at a lot of people, including ourselves, because the song was really about celebrity. It wasn't about it anybody specifically. It was about the excesses and the ridiculous personality distortions that people can go through, as I did, as I watched him do. So we just hatched the study up out for a video and tried to keep it under wraps, which of course it didn't stay under wraps very long. And I'm pleased with it. I think I think the video's 
is petty and shallow and intelligent at the same time, and the song was all the same thing, so it was appropriate for that. The rise of Marilyn Manson was so important to the father figure role of Trent Reznor. But did he overstep his boundaries during the creation of Antichrist Superstar, or was he vital to the sound and vision, in your opinion? I can see where he would overstep his boundaries. I mean, obviously, there's a reason why Reznor wanted to work with Manson in the first place, is because he obviously respected his creativity as well. But at the same time, Reznor was the one with the know-how. He was the one with the experience. Manson wasn't the one with the experience. So he definitely had to have his hand held for a little bit. But we've seen this in, you just said it, we've seen this in father-son situations where it's like, I would, I could do it. I could do it. Let, yeah. I want to do it. Let me do it. And then the father's like, no, 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 let me still help you. Like, I can do this. I can, like, let me right. help you. And like, right. it kind of, um, you know smothers you got a let, little bit you got to let him grow into his own and let's face it you're trying to let somebody grow into their own whether high and super fucked up on drugs all the time yeah. so obviously emotions are going to be running high here with twiggy and Marilyn, having a good time tonight hanging out with them you had the new record coming out called andy christ superstar which uh, you're pretty you're, not, you're pretty much half done with it at least right or three quarters at this point yeah it's uh weird circumstances uh the record kind of looks at uh the future and the past as being real similar, 1969 and 1996 being uh, a lot related. And uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, astral projection and experimentation went into making this record. So a lot of uh, the messages are a bit futuristic. And to us, they come from what would be the past, but a lot of people will see them as a future. And it's it's a dark record. It looks about uh, the end of Marilyn Manson and everything else as we know it. Now, visually, Antichrist Superstar was, again, all Marilyn Manson. And the theatrics and his gift for presenting the dark and scariest images was on another level. A lot of it was inspired by the E. Elias Mirage 1990 cult film Begotten. He would craft a visual element in unison with the story to this dark film. The film would be shot in grainy black and white footage, and here's the first act plot according to Wikipedia. The film opens with a robed, profusely bleeding figure listed in the credits as God killing himself, disemboweling itself with a straight razor inside a small shack. After spastically removing some of its internal organs, the man soon dies and a woman, Mother Earth, emerges from the mutilated remains, bringing the figure's corpse to arousal. She impregnates herself with his semen. The film then cuts to the woman now visibly pregnant, standing beside a coffin of what presumably contains the man's corpse. Wandering off into the vast and barren landscape, the woman later gives birth. Her child, a malformed, convulsing man listed in the credits as Son of Earth, is soon abandoned by his mother, who leaves him to his own devices. We're trying to be not so much multicultural, but non-cultural, creating our own sort of culture. Um... And with religion, um, I went to a private Christian school as a kid up until 10th grade, and uh, so I, I got a full dose of Christianity, and it gave me a perspective on where I'm at now. And 
about 10th grade when I got kicked out because I was stealing money out of girls' purses during prayer, which was my um, poetic justice, I thought, in a weird kind of way. Um, I started looking into other avenues of belief, you know, and trying to discover what was going on other than what I had been, the fear that I was forced to have, you know, be good or you didn't go to hell and all that. So I really wouldn't be able to pigeonhole any of my beliefs except to say that um, believe that people, you know, make their own destiny in heaven and hell is what you make for yourself on earth. The concept, theme, and imagery of the album would expand on these concepts that Begotten would cover and directly influence many visual components. Manson would even hire Marriage to direct a music video for the track Crypto Chit. And if you believe that you want to do something, then you can do it. It's just a matter of uh, all the power of the mind, I think. You know. Somehow there's some relationship between that and nature, and I'm sure that there's some kind of supernatural that's not that easy to find by giving it a name. So. With success in the spotlight still on Marilyn Manson from Smells Like Children, less than a year later, on September 26, 1996, Marilyn Manson would release lead single, The Beautiful People. The track was a commercial and critical smash, and the accompanying video would be on rotation constantly on MTV, and on October 8, 1996, Marilyn Manson would finally release its second full-length album, Antichrist Superstar. What did Antichrist Superstar show to the world about Marilyn Manson? I think it was more so his uh, like, hey, this is I'm this is me. I'm here. Uh, it was a slap in the face, I think, to the music industry and to the world. I don't think you've seen something like this or is this graphic or this scary?
Alice Cooper had the guillotine. He had some dancers. And sure. There was this creepy imagery, but it was, but Manson was the evolution of He that. took it to like another level. Yeah, a level that we never thought possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that were going on in that Beautiful People music video, just, uh, you know, him on the crutches and him with the long, creepy arms. And it's just, disturbing. Yeah, the fish, the fish lens, everything that they used on that video really just... It stayed with you forever. I mean, I remember being like 16 years old and I saw that and I mean, my whole world melted. I didn't know what I was watching. Mm-hmm. And the song, let's face it, super basic, super easy, extremely catchy. Mm-hmm. And he let everybody know that you could be this, you know, you could be that dark. You could be that deranged, that twisted and still be accepted by the public. They were washing that Manson was never, ever around their presence. I tell you one thing, when Masson get there, he sure won't be the leader. The album would be leagues beyond anything the band had released prior. Visually, it was a stunning and frightful presentation of fascist imagery, horror films, and sexual dominance, forever redefining the definition of shock rock and casting fear across the entire world of parents. Understanding what was being released was difficult for most parents and a generation prior, but the kids understood and embraced every word and picture that he created with this project. The first Manson show I went to scared the hell out of me. What about the whole Satan thing? Do you buy into it? Actually, Satan isn't that bad of a thing. People make it out to be. And uh, is that something that you've looked into because of listening to Marilyn Manson? Yes. Yeah? He's taught it to me. It's kind of the image and the music. It gives yourself a freedom to be who you want to be. You know, you're not trying to follow everyone else. You're expressing yourself. The album was a massive success and went platinum within the first year. And the accompanying tour called the Dead to the World Tour would cause controversy every stop it made. Also at this stage, the band would introduce new guitarists on this tour named Zim Zum. I'm trying to, um, in many ways, uh, drive people away from Christianity. And yeah, the danger is uh, creating a, a similar type of herd mentality, but uh, I think people aren't giving our fans enough credit for their intelligence. Some of the actions taken by protesters are the following. Jacksonville, Florida schools threatened to expel any students that attended his concert, and over 5,000 residents petitioned the mayor to cancel the concert. Shows would get canceled after petitions in towns like Portland, Richmond, Virginia, New York City, and New Jersey. And at Calgary, the venue could not get insurance from anyone for this show's performance, so it would, too, be canceled. Also, as the chaos and fear was sold everywhere, he visited lawsuits would start to file in from former members like Daisy Berkowitz and Gidget Gein. Yeah, I think... uh it's part of getting across the point of Marilyn Manson and the dichotomy and of that extreme positive and extreme negative that can go into, you know, sexual imagery also. Yeah. I think uh, it's too boring to have things spelled out plainly. I think uh, the more options you have, the more exciting life can be for you mm-hmm. overall. Having something to report every day on Marilyn Manson did what to the band in 1997? Just made them extremely popular. Again, it just added to the lore. 
You couldn't go anywhere back in those days without hearing Marilyn Manson, without seeing that skinny, emaciated body. And half, like talk shows, too. Yeah, half naked. And that was the best part. Like, they, he'd go on these talk shows. <laughs> like, we, you've heard clips from the uh, the first episode, and he's on a talk show with David Letterman. And, you know, Letterman's kind of making jokes or whatever, mm-hmm. and Manson's kind of just kind of shrugging his shoulders and going along with it. But if you really ask him to break down some of the imagery, if you ask him to break down the music, if you ask him to break down just America, America, I don't think anybody gave better responses. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was intelligent just added more to the lore. It's admirable to be, it's, it's very admirable to be idealistic. You know, but I, I, I want people to think, but I'm not trying to think I can save the world. You know, maybe the you world doesn't deserve the world to be saved. Maybe they only deserve to be oh, entertained now, before they're all destroyed. You can't judge who's Christ more. and who isn't. Energy. He may have more Christ in him than you do. You can't really say that. You will know a tree. And that's from Mrs. Brady. Now, Manson embraced this new role with open arms as the scapegoat and the villain to the entire country. Stating days to the release of the album, society has traditionally always tried to find a scapegoat for its problems. Well, here I am. He would continue his public personality into mainstream programs like Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher or The O'Reilly Factor, but he would always come off intelligent and never get angry as the hosts try to dismantle his meanings and his message. Something that was never seen before and truly made him more charismatic and challenging. He would clearly win debates with so many different hosts and all the environments being very hostile. It's not to say that I regret it or am against it. It was just where I was at a year ago. So it's about externalizing your pain? It's about uh, taking yeah. it back? Yeah, and I mean, it's almost, it's actually a very Christian ritual. If you look back in history, it was something... Uh, Flailing and self-mutilation was something that people used to do uh, to repent for their sins. So they didn't really have rock stars. Though. They have to actually blame the Christians for that. They, they didn't have rock stars then that that, that they idolized in, in that. No, but they had a guy on a cross who was very similar. How rare and important was Manson's intelligence and skill to verbally express himself in debate to the general public? We talked about this before with Ann Coulter. She would walk on these shows, walk into the lion's den, and people would just start screaming at her. And then they look like they're the ones that are unhinged. And then she just sits back, gives a calm, cool, collected answer. And there was nothing you could say about it. There was nothing you could say about it. You would try and come back with with your version and you would, you know, they would kind of revert back to the same things they would do with Manson where, you know, calling him all types of names and just trying to get him rattled. But you couldn't, you couldn't rattle Marilyn Manson, no matter how hard you tried. And that's always what I remember seeing in these interviews, like these people would come at him, they would attack him and he would just sit back completely emotionless. And when it was his time to speak, he spoke and unfortunately, like he would speak, yeah, the crowd would turn on. He'd wait for them to get their groans out. Then he said something else that combated those groans. He just he was always three steps ahead Which in every interview. It's interesting because you would think that Marilyn Manson would have, you know, he'd be the one barking and he would be the one unhinged. But to see the crowd kind of, you know, attack him and all this stuff. And he's just like, OK, I'm going to let you speak. And then, you know. Well, the music and the art was where he would become unhinged. The music and the art would be where he would scream and show his rage. But Mm -hmm. when he was off stage, I'm the smartest motherfucker in the room. What's your message? What are you trying to get across in the lyrics to these songs? It's always about being yourself and and not being ashamed of being different or thinking different. Um, I try and take everyone's ideals, common morals, 
flip them around, make people look at them differently, question them so that uh, you're not always taking things for granted. All right, Noble. But why the bizarre get-up? I mean, why the eye? Why the nail polish? Why the Satan stuff? You're a minister in the Church of Satan, right? No, not necessarily. That well, was I that mean, was that was something uh, earlier. I, no, no, no. It was a friend of mine uh, who is now dead, who was uh, a philosopher that I thought that I learned a lot from, um, and that was uh, a title that I was given. So a lot of people made a lot out yeah, of it. Yeah, but I mean, look, if you're a reverend, it's not in a real church job. Satan. I didn't get paid for it. <laughs> but why? If you want to get those kids, those lonely right. kids, and you want them to be able to be creative mm -hmm. and burst out of that. Why the bizarre presentation, which can be misinterpreted? I think everybody's got a presentation. Everybody looks a certain way because they want to convey a certain image. You look a certain way because you want people to listen to you in a certain way. Marilyn Manson would release two more pieces that would be the Remix and Repent EP and Dead to the World Tour VHS in 1997 that would be adjacent to the Antichrist Superstar record. After the Dead to the World tour, Manson would be a permanent transplant in Hollywood, Los Angeles. And with all those vitals to the creation of Antichrist Superstar completely not involved with the project, Manson had to completely start over. Up until that point in his career, he'd been living in the shadow of Nine Inch Nails' Trent Reznor. Reznor would sign Manson to his Nothing Records label in 1993 and would act as a mentor to him by producing his 1994 album Portrait of an American Family and co-producing 1996 Antichrist Superstar. But by 1998, Reznor would be out of the picture, and it was time for Manson to show that he was a creative force on his own. And some doubted Manson's ability to soldier on without Reznor, but he proved the detractors wrong. And Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan would be one of Manson's biggest champions, urging the singer to go into a new direction. The result was an unexpected shot in the arm, not a shot in the foot. Manson would tell Rolling Stone upon the release of Mechanical Animals in 1998, saying, People probably expect us not to be able to function without the heavy hand of Trent. Not that I have a chip on my shoulder or need to prove something, but I think this record establishes that we have our musical identity without someone telling us what to do. Follow my co-host Brandon Hahn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Hahn Comedy, Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp, and Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Sylvia. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. And make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover, rise to offend at gmail.com. Discover the life and work of Marilyn Manson. Purchase or listen to all his albums on all music platforms and stores. Watch and support his multiple film and television appearances and purchase the autobiography The Long Hard Road Out of Hell, wherever ebooks are available. Also check out MansonWiki.com for a truly in-depth view on the history of Marilyn Manson. All content on this show is copyrighted by its owners. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask from you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Next week, we'll do part three of three on Marilyn Manson. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO Podcast, signing off.